Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, thanks for stopping by Liberty Sessions, where we unpack one woman's entrepreneurial journey to help another woman launch her own. I'm your host, Netta Jones. Please join me as we start liberating dreams one episode at a time. Liberty listeners, welcome to another session of Liberty Sessions. We're so excited that you're here today, um, mainly because we love it whenever you join us. But in particular today, we've got uh, Samantha Edis with us, who is going to bring us the goods on work-life uh, wellness. I, I love that you don't word, use the word balance, Samantha, and we're going to get to that in a second. But first of all, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad that you're with us. So I want you to just tell our audience a little bit about the millions of things you do. Um, I'll get you going with you're a best-selling author, you're a speaker, a radio show host. I know you also are a regular on television and write in numerous mag magazine articles or write numerous magazine articles rather. Can you give us a little background on how you became so prolific as this work-life uh, wellness expert, Samantha? Sure. So my background after I, I got my MBA and when I graduated, I started a firm that was really focused on personal branding. And over time, I realized that you couldn't talk to CEOs or experts about their personal brands without talking about the elephant in the room, which was how they were managing their professional and personal lives particularly an issue with women, although now it's an issue for, for everyone. Sure. Um, so I, I really about six or seven years ago, just dug myself into researching the topic of work life and realized that we had no healthy frameworks for how to think about it. Um, and, you know, I saw that there, you know, if you want to, you know, be a meditation expert, then, you know, there's, there's pe countless people that will help you focus on that. And if you want to talk about shame, there's Brene Brown. And if you want to talk about, you know, how to change your life in 10 seconds, it's, it's Tony Robbins. But there was no one who was focused on work life. And so I decided to really dig myself into it and make it my area of expertise. Um, and now, you know, that I've worked with thousands of executives and, and people at all different places in their careers, everyone from stay-at-home moms to, you know, C-level executives, I really feel like um, I crack the code a little bit in terms of really figuring out what the patterns are of the most fulfilled people. Okay. Thanks for that. I'm going to go back one, one kind of, um, step. And when you were talking about your kind of corporate experience and you were seeing 
kind of where that imbalance was. Um, what exactly informed the need to integrate that personal with professional? Like, give us specifics as to what you were seeing that you said, okay, I want, this is something I want to do and I want to ultimately crack the code in. Yeah. And that's, a, I mean, that's a great question because, and it's something I don't get asked a lot, but it's so important, which is really in all of these cases, there was an invisible brick wall that was holding them back. So for the CEO, it might be a failing marriage or for the chef, it might have been financial distress. For the Olympic athlete, it was an issue with her parenting. There was always something seismic that was standing in the way of total success and reaching their potential. And it was almost always something personal. And so as you thought about how we kind of find those inner, where those two things intersect, what what did you sort of identify as if if I could do this, if I could get people to see this or make this change, we would be or they would be better for it. What was the this that you were hoping to get them to? It was really not addressing the personal issues. I mean, here's the thing. If you are in a really bad marriage or you're not supported by your partner, you're really struggling it's hard to go to work every day and be your best self. And we forget how intertwined the different areas of our life are. And, you know, it used to be that there were more boundaries in terms of work and life. It, you know, 40 years ago, you went to your office, you left at five o'clock, you returned the next day at 9 a.m. And that was it. If today you left the office at five, you never checked your email from five till 9 a.m. the next morning, never checked in with your office, you know, your industry might have changed. You might get to the <laughs> office, your job is gone. It's just not realistic anymore. And so really what we, we've found or what I found in, in researching this is that we just, we, we're sort of still expecting our companies or our jobs to set the boundaries for us. But at this point in time, it's up to us to set the boundaries and let those boundaries be known to our colleagues and our our um, our families, and and that's what makes you better at home and better at work. Well, wow, that's um, to be sure a huge shift and one that I think really includes in our case our particular audience, which is made up of entrepreneurs, existing entrepreneurs, women who want to be entrepreneurs, and so what you're sharing with us is something that is particularly important for them to be able to identify because there isn't a structure in place that, that creates those boundaries for them. So I'm excited exactly. to hear. And you know, I, I know, you know how much, how often I work with entrepreneurs and how, how much I believe in them and I'm passionate about entrepreneurship. And I think that one of the most difficult things about being an entrepreneur is that there is no, there's literally no off switch, right? So, you know, you know, if you're in corporate America, that you're the last person in the office, if you're there at 9 p.m. But when you're an entrepreneur, technically you're always on. And yeah. it's really hard to know where to draw the line and when to say, you know, I I once worked with this couple, they had a thriving real estate business in Arizona. Um, they worked together and they had a daughter who was in her teens and they were struggling because basically she said, I can't stand being home because at the dinner table, breakfast, you never stop talking about work. Wow. And so they had to make a change. And a lot of times, you know, we, we feel like we have to be on all the time and our clients expect us to answer the phone at midnight. And we don't have the luxury of, of, you know, taking a vacation, but at the end of the day, you need to really set boundaries too. And then quite the opposite problem I see all the time also with, with entrepreneurs, especially working parents, is I call it the flex time fantasy. You know, you're the you you drop off your kid and they say they need an extra, you know, chaperone for the field trip that day. And you are the one with the technically the flexible schedule because you're the entrepreneur. So then you say yes to the field trip. And then you say yes to picking up the gift for your mom because your sister is a corporate job and she can't do it. You end up watching all of your hours slip away if you're not careful. So I always recommend that even if you don't have a very specific schedule, you create one for yourself. Sure. Um, you are preaching to the choir. I, I love that. And I love that you're calling that out because I think a lot of us do think that, well, gosh, 
I put myself in this situation intentionally so I could be flexible and be available for my children or to do these, you know, volunteer efforts or whatever, when in fact they end up um, sucking your time away that you have to make up somewhere else. And so I went to my child's, you know, uh, field trip, but now I'm working during dinner hours and not, and they're not getting my time or my attention. So it's, it, it, it you're, what you're saying is going to resonate with our listener. So I'm going to just take us back a, a step. We're cheating. Um, the first half of this interview is supposed to be all about you. And I'm so interested in your advice and your tips and having your um, brilliant brain on the air that we're not spending enough time learning a little bit more about how you got to where you are. So we're going to spend the second half talking more about advice. So let's go back a little bit to kind of what fueled your choice to become an entrepreneur. I mean, did you think you would be, you're a a Harvard graduate. I'm going to mention that. You were um, very humble in not mentioning it, but both undergrad and graduate degree from Harvard, I'm sure most of the people that you went to school with were on sort of a corporate path. Um, what was it for you that made you think, I'm going to go this alone? I'm going to create and pave my own path and not necessarily go the corporate route. Was it intentional? I, it's something I don't think about a lot, but I, it's interesting. I guess I grew up as a competitive tennis player. Um, I really didn't have a normal childhood. I was always, you know, sitting in school worrying about whether I was going to win or lose that weekend and who I was playing. And um, I was never available to hang out after school. I never went to parties. I was always playing tennis. Um, So I ended up always feeling a little bit like the outsider. Like I never did the typical path. I had, you know, my five close friends, but I wasn't in a clique. I was always doing my own thing. So I think that was a very comfortable place for me to be. Um, And then, you know, after I graduated from undergrad, all of my classmates knew exactly what they were doing. And I decided I was going to move to Los Angeles and work in the entertainment industry. So I remember traveling and backpacking through Europe the summer after we graduated from college. And all of my my friends who were traveling, they all knew exactly what they were doing. And I was the one the whole time that summer saying, oh, I'm going to look for a job when I get to L.A., Um, so I've, and I did that, but I've always sort of beaten to my own drum professionally and personally. Um, and then when I graduated from business school, I mean, during business school, I was always also a fish out of water. I was the only one without sort of a banking or consulting background. Um, my kind of expertise, which was, I was really strong in the leadership skills and the softer skills, um, sales skills, those weren't as, um, I guess, admired in business school as the hard number crunching accounting, banking, finance skills were. Um, so it took me a while to sort of appreciate. It was a little bit of a, um, a knock to my confidence when I was in business school, frankly, because I wasn't, I wasn't the typical student there. These were all new courses to me. Most of my classmates had either majored in business in college or they'd worked in an investment bank in between college and business school. So I had to work extra hard in business school and I knew I wanted to do something different. All of my classmates were going into hedge funds or consulting or banking. And I just knew that that wasn't for me. So when I came up with this idea to kind of create a talent agency for personal brands and personality-driven brands, um, at the time, I was the only entrepreneur in my class. Um, Oh, my gosh. Boy, times have changed. Times have really changed. Now (laughs) it's like the number one, I think, career choice for Harvard Business School grads. Yeah. Wow. I, um, I didn't realize that it was right after grad school that you had started that, that agency and working with, um, other experts and sort of major talent that's been a through line in your career. Can you tell us, so what was it that, that, that work and doing that work created for you in terms of opportunities and what muscles were you flexing while you were doing that, that now informs the work you're doing? Well, certainly working with so many high level executives really helped me understand their lives. And I had such a variety of clients. I had 
a top entrepreneur. I had, you know, a CEO of a huge firm. I had a top music executive, um, you know, a chef, a plastic surgeon. I mean, I really had a variety of clients. And so when I was working so closely with them on their branding, on their press, on their speeches, on their board involvements, I really became entrenched in understanding their industries and what their challenges were. And I think it really just helped me going forward in terms of understanding a vast array of businesses so that now my number one um, sort of focus is my public speaking. And so when I go into a company and talk to them about work-life management, um, it's really easy for me to go from a fortune you know, 500 company to a group of women entrepreneurs or a group of parents or, you know, an accounting firm or Twitter or Google, like it's, it's easy for me to, to go seamlessly from one of those worlds to another because I've worked with so many different kinds of personalities and industries. And would you say in working with all of those different types of people and people with varying backgrounds, would you say that you've identified sort of the through line in terms of what is it that we all crave or need with respect to kind of personal and professional boundaries so that that what we're seeking is a life that is fully integrated? Well, with few exceptions, we can all make a decision that we're not, we're going to turn our phone off at 10 o'clock at night, for example, or we're going to have two hours in the evening with our families where we just are just fully present with them. Um, or we're going to be the first ones into the office. You know, these are decisions we can make for our own lives. Um, of course, I've worked with, you know, the, the outliers, the ones who are working with, with, you know, Asian countries. And so they're in America. And so they have to be taking calls in the middle of the night, perhaps. But that's that's the exception. Most of us actually have more control than we realize over, um, over our lives. And what I found is that the most fulfilled and the most successful people really have a few things in common. There's not that much variety mm-hmm. in terms of what yeah. makes a fulfilling life. And the number one thing is that they're involved in multiple slices of their life. You know, I feel like I've kind of unpeeled that expression of, you know, if you, if you want to get something done, give it to a really busy person. (laughs) I think it's actually that we all thrive when we are involved in a lot of different things. And I think involvement is the spice of life. You know, people are happiest when they're involved in their communities, when they're really involved parents, when they're really involved with their spouse, when they're really involved in their careers. So it's like we we talk so much about happiness and chasing happiness and will my child grow up to be happy? But if we framed it more as a focus on fulfillment, then happiness follows. I love that distinction. Um, and, and thank you for making it because it's one that I think we kind of muddy up in our own minds that happiness is the end game or the goal. And yeah, I think you're also, right about fulfillment. Yeah, I, mean, I think also, especially as women, we are often perfectionists. And so, or, you know, we're so hard on ourselves. So one of the things we do is we tend to say, okay, if I just spent all my time on one or two or three slices of my life, I'll be amazing at those slices. But it's just not the case. So that ends up in a really dangerous spiral of women leaving their careers because they think they can't hack having a baby and a marriage and a, and a career or, you know, of, of we, we stop working out because we don't have time. I think that a lot of times what we don't realize is you're going to make the mistakes and drop the balls, even if you're only involved in two or three slices. You know, I like to give the example of a, a woman I know who was hugely successful in an advertising agency left her job because she wanted to be the perfect mom and not miss the moment. And she was so devastated because she'd missed her younger daughter's first steps and she wasn't going to let that happen again. So she, she quit her job and her, I mean, this is ridiculous, but she was at her, her older child's soccer game and her youngest ended up walking while she was at her older son's soccer game. And it's, you know, it's, <laughs> It's one of those things where like our lives are messy. And as soon as we start accepting the fact that 
every day is a series of messy moments. Like, I mean, if you look at your day to day or yesterday, it's like a roller coaster of highs and lows. And it's not a bad day, it's a bad moment. We all have them every day. But what we tend to do when things go really wrong is we blame our careers and we say, I just can't do this anymore. And unfortunately, we end up really hurting ourselves because we're better at being a good partner or being a good friend or being a good parent when we are feeling personally fulfilled. And it's really important that that fulfillment involve our own goals and something that we feel like we can sink our teeth into and really give ourselves to. In fact, I think one of the most selfless things you can do is is to share your gifts with the world. And if you're staying at home and you're not exposing yourself to the world, then you're really depriving the world of those gifts. Oh, I love that. Okay. That's going to be a quotable. Thanks for that, Samantha. So <laughs> you, you brought up this concept of, you know, the slices of, of, of life and having these multiple slices. So what is it like for you, somebody who is a speaker, who is an author, who is um, constantly being asked to write articles or to, you know, show up on the Today Show or whatever. What is it like for you running um, kind of from day to day? And what do you find to be the hardest part for you? Um, I, I think it's different every day, right? So for me, um, I the way I think about work and life and managing it is that I probably travel in an ideal world. I travel twice a month for a couple of days each time. And people will say, Oh my gosh, how do you do that with three kids? And how does it work? And the way I make it work is that it means that on the other days when I am in town, unless I have an afternoon TV appearance, I'm usually picking a child up and taking one of my kids to an activity or taking all three kids like I am today, or, you know, it makes it so that I can do drop off every day and I can do pickups. So my own work-life balance, so to speak, is that when I'm gone, I'm fully gone. But when I'm home, I'm fully engaged. Yeah. Um, so that's how I manage my life. But at the same time, like I've been known to, you know, come home from the airport, you know, I fly in and I'll meet my husband out to dinner because I know my kids are going to sleep in a half hour anyway. So we'll have a date night and then they'll just know that mommy came home late at night. Um, so I really work hard to, to get all my slices in. I'm the first person to make a you know dinner with friends plan or meet a friend for coffee, even when I'm at my busiest, because I know that when I lose touch with my friends, I don't feel as good. Sure. And I, I've heard from so many people, um, and I happen to believe that it's true, that when you can be fully present and engaged with your children, it's not just being physically present, but that you're fully there. Um, that the, That's what matters to them, and that's what they remember. And I actually was having a conversation with a woman who said she just had her first baby, and she was saying, I'm really navigating like how to manage my sort of entrepreneurial career and what I'm doing with this child. And, um, and my husband and I are going back and forth with these uh, different questions of kind of what, what do we want out of our life? And she said, in an effort to better understand kind of what I want to do or what I'm hoping, hoping to do with my own life, I reflected on my life as a child. She said, I don't have very many memories with my mom being around. She was a working mother, um, but she worked like a very nine to five schedule. But I don't, I don't have these very distinct memories of us doing things or having routines or rituals. My father, who was, this is this woman telling me this, who was a pilot was never around. He was gone for weeks at a time. But I have so many childhood memories of him making pancakes on Saturday mornings, of him being present in this and that way. And so she and I were sort of uncovering what could that be. And it was that the that when he was there, he was fully there. He was completely right. engaged and present. Versus her mom, it was just this sort of I'm, I'm here and I'm cooking dinner and I'm doing laundry and I'm putting you to bed and I'm doing all the things that I need to do to physically take care of you. But she wasn't, uh, in, in the woman's mind that I was speaking to, she wasn't having the same experience as she was having with her father. And I thought, man. Well, and I mean, that story doesn't break your heart a little bit. Yeah. Because 
Yes. So sad for that mom who put in so many hours. And I, I do always say like, you know, your child is so much better off having 90 minutes of your full energy where you are gazing into their eyes. You're listening to what they say. You're paying attention. You're not checking your phone. That is so much better for a child's confidence and your relationship with them than 12 hours of distracted parenting. Yeah. I mean, as soon as you get to a point in your life where you're saying, oh, thank God it's it's five o'clock. I get my glass of Chardonnay. You've, you've gone terribly in the wrong direction. Like, <laughs> yeah. like Terribly wrong. Because in fact, if you think about it, especially as your kids, you know, get to kindergarten, five o'clock is when the real parenting happens, yeah, right? That's absolutely. when they come home from school and they're telling you things and they have homework and they have to get something for class tomorrow. And they are, that's, that's really, and you're putting them to bed and doing dinner. Like that's the real parenting. And if you are all day long with your kid, but impatient and a little bit resentful of the fact that you're just, you know, wiping butts and doing all the manual labor of parenting, then you really don't have the energy, the good energy for them at the end of the day. That's right. And I would even argue that for those who can sustain a four-hour, five-hour, six-hour gaze, that that's a little too much. And we need to be creating opportunities for our kids to be more independent and feel like they are fully functioning human beings apart from us, especially as they begin to grow. Um, And, you know, books like um, Raising an Adult and things like that that really give us the tools for that and the language for that, I think are important. And and I like your 90 minute. I like that 90 minute sort of rule of thumb because, man, if we can connect for 90 minutes on a school night, like that's just the jackpot. Like we've- Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and think about it also. I mean, the next time you're out alone with your partner, if you are literally not checking your phones and you're listening to each other for- over dinner and nonstop, that that could fuel you for a week, no, right? So but right. if you're yeah. out with them and you're checking your phone and you're distracted and you're talking about all the problems at home, then you're not really doing much for your relationship. And same with a friend. If if you that you know that that study shows that if just the presence of a phone on the table completely changes the course of a conversation because there's that feeling that you could be interrupted at any moment. So, you know, being with a friend and really giving them your time versus being with them and checking and having the phone ring and picking up, those are the kinds of things that really change the course of your relationship. Yeah, that's thanks for that. That's good for us to remember. Um, So again, we talked about all these things that you're sort of doing in your day to day. Is there for you in managing all of your platforms, is there somewhat of a hierarchy, a hierarchy to your various pursuits? I mean, do you say, okay, I'm all about speaking or I'm really an author first? How do you identify or decide where you spend the lion's share of your day or week or even month? How do you distinguish what's important? I mean, as you know, as an entrepreneur, it is so hard to do that. And you want to chase every opportunity that comes your way. And you get nervous that if you don't, it won't be there next time you want it. Um, So for me right now, I'm prioritizing my speaking. It's really a way that I can reach. I found that I can touch the largest number of people. Um, And for me, that's been a focus is how do I touch as many people as possible with this message, because um, one of my my personal sort of, I guess, passions is I, I want to see women staying in the workforce after they have kids. And it's not because I have anything against stay-at-home moms. It's that I know that the most fulfilling lives are those that are involved in all of these different areas. And so I want to share with women the way to get there. And I think that what I noticed and, and part of why I went into this field is because I realized that we have three really faulty frameworks for how we think about work and life, you know, and, and it's perpetuated by the media and by us. But if you think about it, if you, if you were asked what the frameworks are, there really only are three that we see and they're work-life balance, which sets us up for failure because for a scale to be in balance, you have to spend equal time at work and at home. Mm -hmm. And if you have a real career, that's never going to happen. And plus, you know, two areas of life is just unrealistic. We have, I, I, I think of it as seven, um, 
And then we talk about juggling, but anyone who's ever had a conference call with a child in the room knows that's pretty (laughs) impossible. Um, And then we talk about having it all, you know, that Atlantic Monthly article, um, Anne-Marie Slaughter's Mm -hmm. book, everything. I feel like she did such a disservice to women because at the end of the day, I mean, I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with Anne-Marie, but one of, you know, she kind of did the equivalent of a tour of duty in Iraq. She was leaving her family for five nights and five days a week and returning to them on the weekends. And I think that 99.999% of women are not in that position. And then she had the gall to return from that and said, I found out you can't have it all. Um, And it was just a very unrealistic depiction of a life. And it's not a life that most of us choose or have. So um, if a man did a tour of duty in Iraq and came back and tried to say, guys, you can't have it all, men would laugh at him. They wouldn't make him their poster boy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we kind of were like, yep, it's true. We can't have it all. But then if you ask anyone who has it all, they can't think of anyone. Right. Um, so it's this, it's this really strange thing. So we really have no framework for thinking about it. And when I came up with this pie analogy, it's that we, you know, the most fulfilled people have six or seven areas of their life that they're involved in. And what I found is that if you make goals for each of those slices, then you start accomplishing things and you feel better, especially if they're reasonable, very micro goals. Um, and that's a much healthier way to think about your life because we tend to, to torture ourselves and think our life will start 10 pounds from now or a new baby from now or a new relationship or a promotion mm-hmm. from now or a new client from now. And, you know, we probably have all the ingredients we need today. We just need to shake up the recipe a little bit. I love that. Yes. And I totally agree. Um, so I want to get a little bit more into this concept of the pie and more specifically the book you wrote um, called The Pie Life. But I just have one last question for you that's really focused on kind of your personal life and um, how you yourself are, are managing all the things that you do. So you mentioned you're a mother, you're a wife, um, and you sort of through doing all these different things and having the, your own slices that you're managing, you have firsthand knowledge of what our pain points are and what we need to hear. And, um, and that's really informed the book and your, you know, your, um, expertise in terms of, uh, you know, when you're speaking to people and knowing what to say and when to say it and how to say it. But do you sometimes find that it's hard for you to take your own advice? Like, do you do you find that you're like, oh, gosh, this makes all the logical sense in the world, but how am I actually going to do this? How am I going to manage all these pieces or juggle them? Absolutely. I mean, one of the nice things about my platform is that I, I talk a ton and we haven't really touched on it yet, but I, I believe that, you know, there is no such thing as perfection and that a full life is a messy life. And you're going to make so many mistakes every day and that's okay. And everyone makes them. And I have, you know, a comedy of errors on a daily basis. You know, two days ago, I was going to a meeting, wasn't really paying attention. I was on a conference call. I put in the address into ways and just kept going. And I, I kept thinking, gosh, this seems so far away. And the person had only was able to squeeze me in for 45 minutes. So I was making sure I was there on time. I like checked how long it would take to get there a zillion times. And it turns out they had two campuses. I went to the wrong campus, which was 40 minutes away from the right. <laughs> no. Call the person and they're like, I'm so sorry. We squeeze you in. There's literally no way we can still meet. So I came back to my office. I'd been driving for over 90 minutes and didn't even have the meeting, you know, and those kinds of things are are constant. I remember last year I was on my book tour. It was November 1st and I was on the way to, I think it was Minneapolis. And I, my phone, I was in coach middle and my phone rang in the middle of the flight. And that morning I had left a sick child behind, which is always hard. My child was sick in bed. She had a fever and it took me, you know, a little bit to get her settled. And I finally did. And my husband was going to stay with her for part of the day. And we were just figuring it out. And I got on the plane and I was like, phew, you know, I, I'm here. It. I'm yeah. fully <laughs> focused on, on my work and I'm on the plane and the phone rings. And I didn't even know that a phone could ring on an airplane. I was airplane. just going to say like, you wow. Know? 
And everyone around me is like staring, like who is this person with a phone ring on the airplane? And I was in coach middle. So it was like, we were all like really tight together. Yeah. And I pick it up and it's, I know I looked down and it was my child's school. I'm like, Oh no. So I pick it up and it wasn't just her school. It was my older daughter who wasn't sick. And she said, mommy, it's November 1st. You forgot to order us lunch. And she said, if I don't have lunch, that Bowen, who's her kindergarten brother, doesn't have lunch either. She's like, we both don't have lunch. Now I'm like in a tin can in the air. (laughs) Now I have one sick child and two hungry children. And what in the world am I going to do about it? And I couldn't reach my husband. I was like frantic. And basically the person at school was like, we have like Cheez-Its. Do you want me to give it to your kids? And at the end of the day, like my kids ate Cheez-Its that day. And it's fine. And they're fine. Yeah. But I, you know, felt like the worst mother and I'm such a, you know, I thought, oh my gosh, this is such a joke. I'm going to give a talk on work-life balance and I can't even (laughs) feed my kids. I was like, you know, and so it was just one of those things where it's, I'm just like everyone else, you know, I struggle with these things too. But I think because I've been in this field for a while, I'm really a lot less hard on myself. Yeah. And I would be because I just know it's always going to be messy and that's okay. And part of my coping mechanism is to joke with my children about it. So yeah. I'm the first one to be like, mommy screwed up and here's how I did. And I'm so sorry. Well, I'm so glad you answered it like that. I was hoping that you would say something about um, it being hard for you or, or, or messy, because I feel like if you, if that can happen to you with all the information you have um, at your fingertips, then, um, then we can surely forgive ourselves and we can give ourselves permission to, to have those days and make those mistakes. And that's just being human. So thanks for that anecdote. Um, you're saving a lot of us from, from guilt. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate it. There's plenty more where they came from. Okay. I can't wait to hear more of them. So uh, (laughs) this is actually, again, we sort of cheated because you've been giving us great nuggets of advice along the way, but this is actually the part of the interview where we get to transition a little bit and really kind of pull all the goods out of your brain, all the, all the stuff that you've been working so hard to articulate and to teach. Um, and so I want to spend a little bit of time really, um, probably unpacking the pie life and that book, I'm going to give the whole name. It's the pie life, a guilt-free recipe for success and satisfaction. So you've written so many books, but we're going to focus on, on that one. So as you have sort of, um, parlayed your own um, interests and your own expertise into this successful career with multiple platforms, um, what would your advice be for those listening who want to develop that same expertise, who want to write a book like The Pie Life, who want to be a speaker, who want somebody like the Today Show to call on them for their, you know, sound bites or for them to do an interview where should they begin to really kind of hone in on that expertise? Is there sort of a write a book first or find speaking opportunities, speak for free, write for free? I, mean, I think writing a book would be less. I think, I think that, you know, it's really hard to sell a book if you don't have a platform yeah. or an audience and the book industry is so oversaturated. Uh, and so it, they really, the publishers count on the authors to create the audience um, unless they're super famous or a gigantic celebrity, sure. it's really up to the author to promote and market themselves and the book. Um, and that's obviously hard to do. I think Gretchen Rubin with the happiness project, she did a, an amazing job of creating a readership of her own happiness project blog. And that propelled her book forward because she had a built in audience. Um, But I think the most important thing is to develop an expertise, Mm -hmm. to research the heck out of something and to make it your expertise. And that in the beginning might mean that you're going to conferences. You're not speaking at conferences. You're going there, you're listening, you're networking, you're taking names, you're, you're watching best practices of the people who are speaking and you're really figuring out what it takes to be there. I mean, I think of myself and I'll tell you a little story. A few years ago, it's not too long ago. It was only like two or three years ago, but I decided I had to give a TED a TED talk. Yeah, and um, I've actually never shared the story publicly, but okay. So I, <laughs> I, I decided I had to give a TED talk. So I basically, uh, you know, applied to like 
15 TED Talks across, maybe 20, um, across the world. I mean, any TEDx that seems like they had a call for submissions, I was submitting to. It could mm-hmm. be any TEDx focus. So I finally get the call. Did it have to be it, an English-speaking country or were I you mean, open really to anything? Yeah. <laughs> okay. No okay. For this at all, except they were calling for submissions. Like literally that was the only qualification. <laughs> in fact, the first one that called me to, to that was interested was in Africa. Mm-hmm. And my husband was like, don't you think you could find one a little more local since, you know, it's going to be on our dime and it seems like there's TEDx's all over the country. <laughs> um so I said no to that one. And then I, um, and then I, my next one was a call from Langley and I'd forgotten <laughs> I'd applied for it. I'd forgotten I applied to it and, and it was an education one. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, it's a little off topic for me because it's not how I make my money. I mean, I'm not talking to companies about education, sure. but it was, I had applied and I'd forgotten I applied and I applied with a topic of you know, don't raise your kids in gender stereotype, gender boxes, pink and blue boxes. And I love the topic and I'm super passionate about raising strong girls and how you do that and how not to stereotype. But at the same time, it was certainly not like a talk that was then going to lead to a lot of other business, right? But I just was convinced I just needed this TED Talk. Then the guy proceeds to tell me he's based in Langley. And I thought, how exciting. I mean, Langley, Virginia has the CIA. It's going to be so exciting. How cool. And we're talking a little more. And I said, I love how exciting is the CIA going to be there? (laughs) And he said, we're in Langley, Canada. (laughs) And I said, oh, of course, of course. I I knew that. That was just a joke. I'm hilarious. Um, yeah, so I thought, oh, great. Langley, can't. of course, I knew that I was just teasing. Yeah, that's so exciting. Um, I love so, and, um, it's, it turns out Langley, Canada is a real suburb of Vancouver. I mean, it's a full over an hour away from Vancouver. Anyway, I create this whole thing. I get there and like two minutes into it, the audio blows and oh the TED talk is really for the video. And I'm on stage for 10 minutes with them fixing the audio. And I'm just standing there. Uh, I'm like feeling my inner Amy Poehler, like trying to <laughs> make jokes for this audience who's like staring at me. It was just terrible. Anyway, then I said, what, should I continue or should I start over? And they said, no, continue. We'll be fine. So I continue with my talk. I did a great job. I get off. I'm kind of like, okay, where's my margarita? Like I've earned yeah. it. And, uh, and, and I've had to sit through all these other people's TED talks first, which is excruciating because you're worried you're going to forget your own lines. Sure. And, this whole thing. and suddenly, um, I get off. They're like, we're so sorry. We just didn't get the audio. <gasps> right. Have you do it again in three hours to the same audience, but the audience has graciously agreed to sit through it a second time. Oh and I'm oh, thinking, that's heartbreaking. Okay, yeah, now they've heard all my jokes. They've like, you know, it's like over like this. Yeah. So I gave the speech to a dead audience. I now have a head <laughs> talk where I look like I, I personally feel like when I watch it, I look like I am half dead. It's like not my, you know, not, but anyway, so cut to a couple years later this summer, I get a call and it's um, St. Louis TEDx women. And they have an audience of 3,000 women and they want me to be one of their keynote speakers. But they called me. It wasn't like I was going and chasing it. And I think it's those little victories. It's like I put in so much work to get to this point. I I did so many reps, right? I think every time I'm asked to speak, I think of it as a rep, just like you're at the gym and you're getting stronger. And I can always be better. I'm always asking people for feedback. I feel like I'm better today than I was eight weeks ago. I'm constantly trying to improve my craft. And I think back to your original question, anytime you can just put in the hard work and really dig in and become an expert in something and stay focused. And I, you know, I understand, especially as an entrepreneur, the temptation to switch if it's not, if you're not having immediate success, you feel like maybe I should just switch it up and go in this direction and I should pursue that. And there seems to be a big opportunity there. And it takes so much um, willpower to just stick with one focus. And eventually the phone will ring if you stay with that focus. It might be five years later, but you have to. And I would even add that your listening audience, you you know, your consumer base, your customer, whatever the work you're doing is, needs you to have those repetitions so they know who you are and what what you're all about. That by the time, if you pivot, let's say you're three years in and you're like, forget it, this isn't really working and you pivot, you may have just started getting the traction you needed 
from an audience that just figured out who you were. It takes a while. There's so much noise. There's so much content out there. You need, you, you owe it to the audience. You owe it to um, what you're building to be able to to do that. Um, so I love that advice for, for a couple of reasons. So I'm going to kind of I actually love what you said too. It's really, it's so true. I really, really appreciate that. Oh, good. Oh, well, you know what, Samantha, I'm here for you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So let's think, let's um, dig into the, what you were saying a little bit about the, okay, somebody's really developed that expertise and now they've decided, okay, I'm going to follow in Samantha's footsteps and I really want the speaking opportunities. Any advice or best practices on how to submit Besides knowing where which Langley or 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 you know some of the obvious ones that you just shared with us, anything that like really focus on this or really don't do this. This is not a good idea. I did it, and trust me, don't do it. Like, how do we once we've taken your advice and we've developed that expertise and we've strengthened that muscle, how do we get those speaking opportunities? I think so much of it is networking, Um, you know, and now with social media, it's easier than ever to network. And by networking, you know, it has a little bit of a dirty word. Um, You know, a lot of people think of it as something terrible or slimy or, but it's really not networking is really helping people. And what that means is let's say there's pick 10 people you admire, whether they're speakers or they're authors or they're people in your field, they're industry experts. You can cultivate now with Twitter it's re, or Instagram, it's so easy to cultivate a relationship with those people simply by liking and commenting and retweeting mm-hmm. their content. Yep. And it's, it's really, I mean, no one's done a study on this yet, but I am fascinated by the fact that over time, I'm sure you've seen this happen. You end up believing, you know, someone who's constantly <laughs> yes. interacting with you on yes. Twitter. You almost forget yeah. that you don't know them. They could be any other person than what they're presenting, but you just end up thinking you re- kind of know them. Yeah. Um, and so it's actually really easy. It, it's made the world a little bit flat when it comes to networking. Um, I can promise if you, you know, retweet Sally Krawcheck every day or Alyssa Milano, whoever it is that's in your field eventually they're going to notice you and, and just think your name's familiar and yeah. when you email them for something, yes, they'll probably respond. So it, it's, it's just really important to realize that like the world is your oyster now because social media has made it so much easier to get to almost anyone. Yeah, And you can get people's attention by helping them first. I'm always shocked by how many people oh, wait, will say that slow. That's so okay. important. You can Say it one more time. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) You can always get people's attention by helping them first. And what I mean by that is so often I'm I'm just continuously shocked by someone who will ask for something, right? They'll they'll ask someone for their time. They're asking them to sit down with them over a cup of coffee and give advice. And then they'll go back to that same person two months later and ask them or six months later or a year later and ask them for more advice. And it's in the middle, I hope that they've been supporting them. They've been posting their articles. They've been encouraging them. They've been commenting on their posts on social media, whatever it is. You can't keep going to that same well twice if you're not first helping. And even that first encounter, it's always better to help a couple of times before you ask for help. I I so agree. And you're giving us so many quotables for Instagram. So (laughs) thank you for that. (laughs) I love it. Um, So, okay, let's, um, let's say that people kind of do the things that, that you're suggesting in terms of submitting themselves and getting to know people and networking and and that sort of thing. How do they, I'm going to go back to your work-life balance. How do you sort of stop the madness? Because I think we can get on a path where we're so single-minded and we think in those early years, like I've got to keep doing this and putting in all this time. And I, I have to, you know, Samantha said something about networking on social media. So now I'm on social media eight hours a day. Like, how do you know when sort of enough's enough, even in those early building years? So I'm so big on goals. I said this earlier about the pie and how you should have goals for each slice, but I'm really big on goals for everything. So if you are suddenly, you know, insist to promise yourself that you are going to tweet at least twice a day or once a day, every day, or you're going to post in your Facebook group once a day. Um, Those are the kinds of really finite goals you need. And consistency is really key. If you're going to 
try to become a Facebook personality, doing a Facebook Live at 9 a.m. every Sunday morning makes you predictable to your followers. Mm -hmm. And so those are the kinds of things that you have to be devoted and dedicated to doing. However, productivity for any of us drops off after 50 hours. So you don't want to be overworking. I mean, the reason that we, Henry Ford is the reason that we have five-day work weeks um, because he discovered that his productivity in his factories was plummeting and he didn't know why. And he realized it was because people were just working too much. And so by creating a five-day work week and he created nine to five, he made it so that the productivity of his factory was better than ever before, even though people were working less. Wow. So it's really important that we don't overwork ourselves and especially entrepreneurs. You owe it to the people in your life. If you won't do it for yourself, do it for the people in your life. Set sure. those boundaries. And again, the people in your life include those customers because if you're not churning out good work, which is what you owe them, then you're not doing the thing you were really intending to do in the first place. Exactly. So, you owe it to your clients, but you also owe it to your employees. I mean, yeah. you are someone who doesn't take a vacation or never or never stops or never takes a break. What kind of life are you modeling for them? What kind of life are you modeling for your children or for your partner? I mean, this is your 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 work and your nonstop nature is going to affect everyone negatively. So you owe it to yourself and to the ones you love and the ones you manage and the ones you work with to really set boundaries so that work is not eating up your life. Amen. Yeah, you're so right. Um, so can you, that that's a kind of good segue into let's look at the pie life and let's look at, I mean, the book is described as the ultimate self-improvement playbook for women who work. So can you share maybe, you know, two or three secrets that you've uncovered for us to sustain a thriving personal and professional life at the same time? Like, what is it that we're all going to go out and get it, of course, but in this podcast, like, what can you share with us in terms of, you know, here's some takeaways that I, I really want to kind of impress upon you or leave you with. So one of the things I would say is um, your relationship sets the tone for the rest of your life. So it's really important that you are, I've never seen anyone reach their potential who isn't single or partnered with someone who supports their dreams. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that you choose your partner wisely. And that if your current partner is not a 50 percenter that you turn them into one. Um, and in my book, I have a chapter called the partner shift, which literally lays out step-by-step -step how to turn a spouse into a partner. Um, and I think that's, that's super critical, um, is that you have a high expectation of your relationship, um, and that you're giving and getting. I love that uh, for so many reasons, for so many yeah, women to, to be exactly. going into those relationships, um, with that mindset. And I think that your book sales will spike just because of that one, uh, you mentioning that one chapter. So that's, that's yeah, a good one. So uh, critical. And then the next thing I would say is creating boundaries. We've talked a lot about that, but, you know, being predictable to your colleagues and your family is so important. I, I worked with one woman in, in Boston who would hide behind her desk starting at 4.30, worried that she'd catch someone's eye who would throw a last minute project on her desk. And almost every day she was later than she expected for her nanny at home who was angry at her because they had to stay late again and her kids were disappointed. And I said to her, what if you just announced to your colleagues and your manager, unless there's an emergency, I'm leaving at 5.30 every day. But if there's anything, if there's a deadline, if there's just a really important project, I will be the first to stay late. And if you need me at home, I'll be back online in a few hours and here's my home number. And she, it took me months to convince her to do this. But once she did, she used that last hour of her day at the office much more productively. Mm -hmm. And she was better at work. She was cheery. She was more cheery. She was happier. And she was also more predictable to the people at home. So everything was running more smoothly. So setting those boundaries is critical. The third thing I would say is um, drop the guilt. You know, in very few cases, guilt is a positive. And it's a positive because it helps our moral compass, but it is not a positive most of the time. It eats up our energy. It eats up our health. It's really a negative force. And 
so many women spend so much of their days feeling guilty. And if you think about it, when you are feeling guilty, you're not present wherever you are. So if you're at work and you feel guilty because you should be home with your sick child, you're actually not helping your child or your work, right? right? Mm -hmm. If you're at home and you're like, oh gosh, I should really be on a call right now. You're not present with your family and you're not on the call. Um, So, and if you're out with a friend and you feel guilty about being there, you're not present with your friends. So the more you can drop the guilt, I mean, that's the one thing I interviewed in this book, a hundred women from, you know, Shonda Rhimes to Liz Lang, the maternity wear um, pioneer. Mm -hmm. And what they all had in common is they spent almost no time feeling guilty. Wow. They, that's a whole, that's your next book. That's a whole, I know. Other, I actually, seriously. You, you said it. It is actually my next book. I was tracking with you. I love that. That's awesome. Well, you have to tell us as soon as that's up, we'll do another podcast with you. <laughs> Years away. <laughs> okay, that's okay. That's okay. So, um, let me ask you on a, just very practically speaking, like, what are the tools, um, apps, any resources that you might use on the day to day to keep you organized and kind of from from things getting out of hand? Oh, that is such a fun question. I might <laughs> cheat and look at my iPhone for a second, but um, one of my favorite apps that I'm truly obsessed with is um, Venmo. Mm -hmm. So Venmo allows me to pay like any vendor I work with, even babysitters, everyone super quickly. So I'm obsessed with my Venmo. And I'm probably also like pretty obsessed with um, the, what's it called? The signing app. I use it to sign all my documents. Oh, Um, I don't know. Sign easy. Okay. So I can sign any contract, anything on my phone. I'm obsessed with it. Oh, that's a good one. Um, And then I'm like crazy about my like Twitter and Facebook and I'm really big into Instagram stories. Um, I don't know. What do you do in your stories? Do you give us bits of wisdom? Do you give us a look into your crazy day? Like what do you, what's your main it's a combination, goal. but it's okay. mostly a look into my crazy day okay. or you know, the things I'm doing. I, um, I think those of us yeah. who are in kind of varying service industries or experts like you um, are always looking for how do how do we share on Instagram? What is it that we have to offer? So that's a good tip just to Well, to, it's complicated. And I do, you know, I somehow think that you shouldn't have more than one or two posts a day on Instagram to max. I try to aim for one. Um, but I do try to post every day, um, but I find it easier almost to do Instagram stories and then they disappear and it's kind of a snapshot into someone's 24 hours. And then Um, there's no pressure on all the perfection, right? Exactly. I mean, I guess someone could save that snapshot, I suppose. Um, but it's just, it's a little bit more real and I try to, you know, share my daily life. Because as I said, there's messy moments all day long and I try to share a lot of them. Okay. So I want to say to our listeners, we will share um, in our show notes, the, the apps that Samantha just mentioned, as well as all of Samantha's handles and website. So you don't need to panic. And, and if you're driving, especially think that you're not going to get them, go back to libertyforher.com and we'll have everything in the podcast um, show notes. So, yeah, and then the one thing we haven't yeah. talked about yet is my first consumer product, which <gasps> just came out. What? Um, yeah, it's the Pie Life Planner. So what happened was when I was on my book tour, I was on an 18 city book tour in the fall and multiple people in different cities of all different ilks came up to me and said, why don't you have a paper planner? And what's so funny is I use my phone as my planner and, but I've always been someone who missed the paper planners I had in college and high school and in my twenties. And I just love them because they became kind of like my journals and my diary. I'm obsessed with them. I know. So I decided to like look into it and I found that the paper plant, like this is the MBA in me, but I found that last, last year, the paper planner market grew 10%. And I worked with a designer and I created the pie life planner, which by the Um, way is beautiful. I mean, it's very, you can walk around with it and not feel like it's, 
it, it's different than walking around with the book. I mean, it's it's lovely. It's gray. It's very sophisticated looking. Or is it silver? Oh, I'm so it's hard glad to you say that. No, it is. I tried to make it so that like you could bring it out in a business meeting and not be embarrassed. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And thanks for not uh, having like a harried mom with like babies on both hips. Um, exactly. Thank you for exactly. not and doing then, that. And then, you know. I also put in there a space for every day for you to track how many hours you slept the night before and how your day is on a scale of um, one to five, just so that it's like one is crawl back under the covers and five is <laughs> um, and then there's a space for like what you're doing for dinner that night. And then there's a place for you to write your goals on every week. Um, and then I put in fun things too, like favorite food holidays, like national nachos day. So you can go celebrate or margarita day and chocolate chip cookie day. Um, and then my favorite thing about it actually is the quotes. I, I've always been so frustrated that all of the quote lists are like full of male quotes. I, if you think I know it's so true, that. right? So, and I've been collecting women's quotes for a long, long time now. In fact, if anyone wants to send me their favorite women's quotes, please do, because okay. I'll, I'll include them in the next version of the planner. Um, but on every week, there's another quote from an extraordinary woman. And that is probably my favorite part of the plan. That's very cool. I'm a huge um, quote fiend. Love, I love me a good quote. So um, I'm going to get the planner just for the quotes. Um, I, I like, I have to say the sleep thing appeals to me too. Uh, tracking that and f- looking for the one opportunity to stick my head back in the covers sounds glorious. Um, so, um, I want to ask you, we have one kind of like fun part that we're going to go into really quickly. I want to be sensitive to time, but I just, well, this I, has all been really fun, Nada, cause oh, you're such a good interview. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. So I, I did want to just ask, because it's hard to have this conversation with you and not ask this question. You know, everybody asks, um, about this work-life balance thing. It, it's hard for me to, to, um, whether it's in my work as a consultant or when I have opportunities uh, to be on a seminar or to speak myself, I just feel like it always comes up, this idea of is there a work-life balance? And I'll tell you, Samantha, I've always said, like, if if there is, which I don't really believe there is, um, this idea of um, trying to balance out life makes you somewhat of a slave to the scale. Like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to put in X amount of time over here, so I better put in X amount of time over here. And I've, I've never quite, I've never met anybody or heard an answer that's changed my mind. But you're sort of the ultimate person to ask this question. So what do you think? Do you think that there is something called work-life balance or does the pie life present a, def- a different way at looking at that? Well, it definitely presents a new way of looking at work and life. And I think that it's instead of these two things, work and life, Mm -hmm. I say there's seven slices. And to be a really fulfilled person, you need to have some of all of those slices. And, um, you know, every one of those slices should exist on your pie. So even if it's a sliver today, make it start existing by putting a small goal onto it, attaching a goal onto it. So I actually believe that it's how you're managing your life. Like we can all design our lives and we can create the life we want. We just have to be very deliberate about it. Mm. Another quote from Samantha Edis, ladies and gentlemen. I love it. (laughs) Um, Thank you for that. And I'm so excited. I I hesitate to ask what the seven are because I really want people to run out and get the book um, and and to sort of be surprised and engaged by which, which, slice they don't have in their life and they may need to incorporate. Um, do you think that we should leave it at that or do you want to share what the seven are? Boil it. I think you still need the book. <laughs> but um, but it, 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 it's career and relationship or the quest to find one. It's health, hobbies, friends, community, and family. Awesome. That's awesome. I, will, I can't wait to uncover all of that um, in the book. Thank you for sharing so much and being so willing to share um, your wisdom with us and your insight and the, um, you know, the answers to a lot of the hard work and the research that, that you've put into this. Um, so now we're going to switch it up for the very last part of the interview, which we call our quick six. So I'm going to ask you six questions and just top of mind, give me your answer. Okay. Do you prefer a nine to five or a flex schedule? Flex. Okay. Do you prefer vacationing in the mountains or the beach? 
Beach. Would you prefer working from home or an office? Office. Oh, you're, man, you're nailing it. Most people are like, well, let's see, maybe. Um, Do you prefer working alone or with a team? Team. And I think this is the hardest question. I always say this. Thai or Mexican food? Mexican, always. Oh, is that a California answer or is, was no. it like that even when no, you were in New York? It's a from birth answer. Okay. okay. <laughs> and um, I was born in New York. <laughs> I know. That's what I was saying. Okay. That's not, I, I would have expected maybe at least um, some debate on that. But I do like Thai food, but like Mexican is my yeah. ultimate favorite. Somebody answered, I think one of our last podcasts said Mexican during the week and Thai on the weekends. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> Very specific. And then um, our last question. So this um, podcast is called Liberty Sessions. We named the company Liberty because our hope is that through entrepreneurship, we're helping women to sort of liberate themselves Um to identify what that calling is, what that thing is that they want to pour themselves into and to feel some freedom as a result. What does it mean for you, Samantha Edis, to be liberated? It means the freedom to choose my own path, to forge my own path, not to be tied down to other people's expectations um, or by perfectionism or by the shoulds of the world. Instead, it's all about the coulds. Yeah. That's good. I like that. Thank you so much, Samantha, for your time. Thanks for just hanging out with us for this hour. I can't wait for this to get out and for all of our listeners to to hear all the all the goodness that you're gonna share with them. And to oh, you, Netta, oh I could talk to you forever. You're such an amazing interviewer. Oh, thanks, Samantha. That means a lot coming from you. So I'm just gonna say bye for now, all you Liberty listeners. Um, again, don't forget to check out the site, and we'll have all of the information on Samantha's book books, actually, um, all of her handles and the apps that she mentioned. Until next week, we'll see you guys later. Bye. Liberty Sessions is broadcast on all platforms, Apple Podcast, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Liberty Sessions on Apple Podcast. It helps us to know if these episodes are inspiring and equipping you to launch and grow your own ventures. You can also find us every day on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Liberty For Her. And please leave a comment using the hashtag Liberty Sessions. We want to hear your thoughts, suggestions, and brilliant ideas. Liberty Sessions is produced by Netta Jones and Elizabeth Windham and music by Jordan Flower. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.